light out everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, I'm going to be diving into a very dark case. I'm going to be looking at the unsolved investor murders. So this case actually is the largest mass murder or massacre to occur in Alaska's history that is still unsolved to this day. What's absolutely insane about this case is that a boat that is over 50 feet long, costing almost a million dollars, was set on fire with eight people aboard. And the person, the culprit that did this, has never been caught to this day. But this episode of the Lights Out Podcast is brought to you by Talkspace, HelloFresh, and Babbel. Make sure you check them out. Links are in the description and show notes. Also, a real easy and free way to support the podcast is just by making sure you're subscribed on YouTube as well as on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you're following the show on Spotify and on social media as we're on TikTok now. Uh, Lights Out Cast, we post a lot of highlights clips from the show there. So that's a great place to sort of just keep up with the latest episodes and also refresh your mind on some of the past ones. Again, that's Lights Out Cast on TikTok as well as Instagram and Twitter. So our story begins on September 5th, 1982. And Mark Coulter stood on his fishing boat as he rolled into port. He watched as the other fishing boats flooded into Craig, Alaska beside him. It was the end of the salmon season when young fishermen returned to the city eager to get paid for their catches. Mark was happy to be one of these young fishermen. Mark was the captain of a 58-foot fishing boat that cost nearly $800,000. The boat was a trawler named the investor, and he took great pride in it. The boat had had a successful season, and Mark returned with a catch of over 77,000 pounds of pink salmon. And after unloading all the fish, he docked his boat at the North Cove dock. With him was his three-month pregnant wife, Irene. Both of them were only 28 years old and made good money in the fishing business. They also had their children with them, Kimberly, who was five years old, and John, who was four. From the young age of 16, Mark always dreamed of making it big in the fishing industry, and it didn't take him very long to become very successful at it. He and his family were originally from Blaine, Washington. Since they weren't locals, they weren't familiar with the other people in Craig. But the people they met along the way mentioned how Mark and his family never hesitated to help others, and they were always friendly with everyone they met. Through his fishing adventure, Mark set the goal of retiring before turning 50 years old, He was hoping for a massive amount of cash that would help him save up for early retirement. And his 77,000 pound catch really wasn't that bad. But he wasn't able to make this big catch alone. Besides the family, four deckhands helped operate the fishing boat. Chris Heyman, who was 18, Mark's cousin Mike Stewart, who was 19, Jerome Keown, who was 19, and Dean Moon. After their long voyage, the family decided to go into town and have dinner at a restaurant called Ruth Ann's. The day they came back into town also happened to be Mark's birthday. So they wanted to go, you know, have a night on the town and celebrate. Meanwhile, two of the deckhands, Dean and Jerome, met up with another fisherman in the area. His name was John Kenneth Peel, and they planned on buying drugs off of him. John knew these guys pretty well because he used to be one of the other deckhands in Mark's fishing crew. He had been fired the previous year because Mark had a strict no-drug policy on his boat, The Investor. As for the other two deckhands, Chris and Mike, it's unknown whether they stayed on the boat or they headed into town for a bit. 
No witnesses had seen either of them that night. But it's commonly believed that they more than likely stayed on the boat. Meanwhile, Mark and his family finished up eating at Ruth Ann's. They paid their bill and headed back to the investor. They planned on calling it a day and heading in for the night. When they got back to the dock, two other boats were docked beside the investor. One was named the Decade and the other one was called the Defiant. Both of them were throwing parties to celebrate the end of their successful salmon season. Music blared from the decks as the other fishermen passed out drinks around the boat. Several of the crewmates aboard the other boat saw Mark and his family returning to the investor. They also saw John Peel, the man who used to work in Mark's crew, saying hi to Mark and the rest of his family as they returned. As Mark and his family headed into the boat to go to sleep, the other two boats partied throughout the night. Even when a storm came through and hit the port with strong winds, the parties just kept on going. Nothing would stop the crews from celebrating the end of their voyages. With loud winds and the rumble of nearby parties, no one could hear the atrocity that took place on the investor just next door. The whole time, the boat was just sitting in the water, unmoved and seemingly normal through the night. As the morning sun rose over the town, a crew member of the decade stumbled back towards the dock and noticed that the investor was now slowly leaving the dock. This wasn't too out of the ordinary as it simply looked like the boat was slowly departing from its dock, but even a rookie sailor could tell that something was off. The brand new tie-down lines from the investor had been left behind on the dock, and this would be a very strange thing for a deckhand to do. As the crewmate walked to the edge of the dock and looked out at the investor, they noticed that someone was piloting the boat. They couldn't tell who it was, but from behind the steering wheel, they even waved back at the crewmate on the dock. Moments later, the captain of the decade saw the same figure behind the wheel of the investor as it floated away. They believed they saw a man, but they couldn't recognize him from so far away. Even though it was a bit strange that the boat was leaving without its tie-down lines, no one made a fuss about it, and the day went on as usual. An hour later, around 7.30 a.m., a crewman of another boat saw the investor anchored just off of Fish Egg Island. This was a small island just across the harbor from Craig, Alaska. At the same time, a different witness saw a small skiff pulling out from the investor, and it traveled to the cold storage dock back at Craig. This suspicious skiff sat there for the rest of the day. A few more hours passed, and the captain of the decade radioed over to the investor, as he wanted to tell Mark that he was sorry for all the noise from the party from the night before. But weirdly, Mark never replied, and the radio was silent. By 10.30, a thick fog had moved through the town, Several of the other fishing boats in the harbor departed for another day of fishing, and the investor was mostly forgotten about. Even by the next morning, September 7th, the boat was still there. This confused some of the other fishermen, as they thought Mark had headed out long before everyone else. He was usually hardworking, and got out to fish as early as possible, but for some reason his boat was still anchored. Over in the town of Craig, a man around 20 years old was seen buying two and a half gallons of gasoline. He was seen getting back on the skiff that had been left at the cold storage for a whole day. And after the skiff departed, it headed straight back to the investor over at Fish Egg Island. And not long after around 4pm, smoke was seen rising up from the horizon. Another fishing boat named the Casino was the first to spot the smoke. And sure enough, it was billowing out of the investor across the water. They alerted the police and the crew members piloted the casino over to the investor to see if they could help. And the closer they got, the captain of the casino saw the same skiff from the day before escaping the investor. The casino captain blew their horn and crewmates yelled towards the skiff, but it wouldn't stop. 
whoever drove the boat ignored the horns and yelling. So the captain took a sharp turn and nearly rammed the skiff to get it to stop. A young man was seen piloting the small boat, and when asked if there were still people on board the investor, the young man responded in a flat and quiet voice. He said that yes, there were people still on the boat. He said nothing else before restarting the skiff's engine and heading back to Craig. Supposedly, the young man talked to three different people near the dock before heading into town, and unfortunately, that was the last time that that young man was ever seen. He vanished before anyone knew the horrors that he had brought upon the investor. Meanwhile, back at Fish Egg Island, the investor blazed with fire. The inferno grew out of control and engulfed the entire boat. The casino crew approached the boat, but they couldn't do much because of the overwhelming heat. As police arrived, they called in a tugboat with a pump so they could hose down the fire. But it took over two hours to get the tugboat to the scene. And all the while, the investor burned. As it burned, an Alaskan state trooper named Bob Anderson was the first on the scene. It was immediately obvious to him that the fire was a crime of arson. So he requested for an arson specialist to come out to the crime scene. Hours passed and by 7.30pm in the evening, the tugboat had finally hosed down the investor. The fire was under control after burning for three whole hours. After all the time, the inside of the boat was completely torched. Black soot filled the hole and the state troopers were finally able to board what was left of the vessel. Small pockets of steam still rose up from the boat, but state trooper Bob Anderson immediately saw what had been hidden beneath the flames. Inside the cabin of the boat, everything was charred black. The fire had gutted the insides of the boat and almost nothing remained. But scattered around the inside were the charred remains of four bodies. They were the bodies of Mark, Irene, their five-year-old daughter Kimberly, and Mark's cousin, Mike Stewart. Besides the injuries from the fire, each one had multiple gunshot wounds. As they pulled the bodies from the wreck, the heat from the boat reignited the fire, and the troopers abandoned the boat just in time before the whole thing became engulfed. And once again, the investor just sat offshore in a blazing inferno. Meanwhile, the state troopers backed off to a safe distance, and Bob Anderson headed to shore. He interviewed two witnesses who saw the man that had been driving the skiff. The witness described him as a 20-21 to year old white man with light brown or blonde hair. He weighed maybe 150 pounds and wore glasses with a baseball cap. The witness statement came from someone who had seen the man driving a small boat. So this was the only description that they could give from a far distance. At first it seemed like this description was at least a bit helpful. But as the troopers looked around the port, they quickly realized that almost every single fisherman in Craig looked like the guy in the description. Another day passed and the investor was still ablaze offshore. State troopers finally made the call to request a helicopter to dump water in the boat and put out the fire once and for all. But no one knows why it took a full day to call a helicopter out finally. Perhaps it was because of the flames and the smoke generated by the blaze. And the helicopter pilots felt like they couldn't safely fly over to the investor but this was an active crime scene that had been engulfed in flames and there's no telling how much evidence was lost in the fire maybe they were hoping that the fire would die out naturally or maybe they just didn't have access to that helicopter either way the boat smoldered with flames as time passed after the fire was finally out they towed the boat back to the dock in craig after docking the wreckage the police didn't bother securing what was left of the boat it was left open for anyone to go in and look around 
which obviously would contaminate and destroy any evidence that remained. And as high tide came in, waves crashed into the boat, washing away even more evidence. When they finally got to investigating the rest of the wreckage, that's when they found the remains of another charred body. An autopsy later revealed it was Jerome Keon, one of the crew members. Several more bone fragments had been scattered around the boat, and they never figured out if they were the remains of Chris Herman or Dean Moon. And the remains of Mark's five-year-old son, John, were never found. They assumed the body was either washed away with the tide or the fire had completely consumed him. And by the end of the investigation, investigators counted eight victims, even though several bodies were never recovered. As far as the official investigation was concerned, all of Mark's family and crew had been murdered. Even though police had a description of the suspect, the description was basically useless. Almost everyone at the dock was a 20-year-old something white male, so the search for the killer seemed nearly impossible. That fisherman's suspect had disappeared into a sea of other fishermen, and just like a school fish, they all looked the same. Yet one of them was a killer who had just committed a massacre. But police had a long and difficult road ahead to find this killer. Before we dive into the rest of the investigation, take a quick break and thank our sponsors for today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Talkspace. Using Talkspace feels a little like having a mental health professional in your pocket. Talkspace offers both therapy and psychiatry. And being able to reach out to my provider anytime, anywhere, makes taking care of my mental health super easy. I'm more relaxed when I'm traveling, knowing that if I need to talk with my therapist, I can just send a message from wherever I am. Working through things in therapy can be tough, but connecting with my therapist isn't. I'm a big fan of therapy and a big fan of Talkspace. You can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist, so it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace's therapist network has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating, and so much more. Plus, Talkspace is secure and private using the latest NN bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Therapy is good for everyone. You don't have to be going through something necessarily to talk to a therapist. They can just be that third party that maybe you need to bounce ideas off of, or maybe you're feeling a certain type of way about somebody or your career or job. A therapist can definitely help give you some clarity. And I love Talkspace because they make it so convenient. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to put yourself on a long waiting list that takes months and months to get in to see somebody. With Talkspace, in 48 hours, you can have a therapist. And obviously, if you don't vibe well with your therapist, you can find a new one very quickly. Plus, it can all be done from the comfort and convenience of your home, which is awesome. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure you use the code LIGHTS to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's lights at Talkspace.com. You know that I love to eat. I also love to cook. And with my busy schedule, I really don't have time to go grocery shopping or find recipes and things like that. That's where HelloFresh comes in clutch every week. Every day when I need a home-cooked meal made in 30 minutes or less, plus cleanup is a breeze. I absolutely love HelloFresh because you can go online and set your meals for weeks and weeks in advance. And then you kind of just set it and forget it. And then your HelloFresh box just shows up week after week with all those fresh ingredients, farm to table, vegetables, produce, all that good stuff. And I got to say, I've never had any issues with HelloFresh. It's always been 
the freshest of the fresh produce, meats, proteins. So, so good. Almost better than what I find at my local grocery store, which is kind of crazy to think. HelloFresh is here to make your hectic fall weeknights a little easier and a lot more delicious. They're quick and easy meals, including 20-minute meals, low prep, and easy cleanup options. Take the stress out of mealtime with time-saving, no-fuss recipes ready in a snap. Plus, HelloFresh isn't just for dinners. Shop HelloFresh Market for quick breakfast, wholesome snacks, and even desserts, and you'll find everything you need to satisfy your cravings without stepping foot in the grocery store or mini-mart. HelloFresh works with your schedule. Plans are flexible, and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and even change your address with just a few taps on the HelloFresh app. And there's always something new on the menu from family-friendly to fit and wholesome or even veggie recipes or something to please everyone. I'm a big fan of HelloFresh and I know you will be too. So go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut65 and use code LightsOut65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut65 and use code LightsOut65 for 65% off plus free shipping. And our last sponsor for today is Babbel. If you're like me and there's a foreign language that you regret not learning in school, it's never too late to start learning with Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can finally cross learning that new language off of your list. I've been using Babbel to sort of pick up Spanish again. Took two years of Spanish in high school, literally didn't learn anything because I just didn't pay attention that well. But with Babbel, honestly, I think I learned more in like a month of using Babbel than I did in two years of Spanish class, which is great. All you need is 10 minutes to complete a lesson, which is awesome. I mean, you can literally be on the toilet and get a whole lesson done by the time you're done. Super, super convenient. What I love about it is that when I started using Babbel in a couple of weeks, I was able to start having real life conversations, which is what you really want to learn a new language for, right? Not necessarily to write a paper, a report, or a book. You just want to be able to speak the language so that you can actually communicate, especially if you travel to the places where that is the native language which I was in Mexico having taken Babel lessons. It really came in handy when just talking with the drivers and some of the staff that I met at the different places I stayed, which was really, really nice. Plus the locals love it. What's great about Babel is that other language learning apps use AI for their lessons plans, but Babel lessons were created by over 150 language experts. So it's voiced by real native speakers, not a computer. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent, which is so important. Plus, there's way more than just lessons with Babbel. There's games, video stories, and even live classes, and it all comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash lights out. That's babbel.com slash lights out for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So as you can probably imagine, the town of Craig was in complete shock by this massacre that had just occurred on the investor. And for police, the pressure was on, but unfortunately investigators had no solid direction to go in. The entire city of Craig was demanding answers and they wanted them fast because this was a small town and obviously things like this just really didn't happen. For someone to go and murder eight people, which included women and children, and then set an entire boat ablaze was just something that no one could even imagine would happen in Craig. As days passed, no clues were uncovered. Who knows how much evidence had been swept to sea or lost in the blaze. And all the police had to go on was a general description of the suspect and the statements of a few eyewitnesses. But finally, they uncovered a solid clue after the autopsies were completed. It was clear that Mark, Irene, and their daughter Kimberly, as well as the crewmate Mike Stewart, had all been shot and it was likely that they were murdered before the boat was ever set ablaze. But the reason for this is still a mystery. 
Maybe the gunshots were more personal, or maybe there was an altercation. The biggest problem with the investigation wasn't the suspect disappearing like a ghost. As it turned out, the biggest problem with the investigation was the police's mishandling of the case. Not only did they let the evidence burn for an entire day, it was also later discovered when locals had spotted the skiff first leaving the investor and docked in Craig, an officer was called to come check it out. But instead of impounding the skiff, the officer simply quickly looked it over and left. His excuse was that the rain had washed away any evidence that had been there, so there was no point looking at it any further. But later, the suspect returned to the skiff and headed back to the investor to set it on fire. As the investigation went on, a running theory formed around the actual time of events. When Mark and his family returned to the boat after eating at the restaurant that night, his wife Irene was seen wearing the same dress that she wore and the charred remains of the fire. So many believe that they were ambushed by the stealthy killer not long after returning from dinner. Investigators also noticed that the seacocks were open on the investor. These are valves on the hull of the boat that can be opened to let water flow into the vessel. So the suspect must have opened these, hoping that the boat would sink after being anchored near the island. And whoever this killer was strategically hoped the heavy fog from that morning would hide the boat as it sank to the ocean floor. But since the boat never sank, this meant that lighting the boat on fire might have been an afterthought. The killer probably later saw this as a plan to sink the boat, and it failed. After the boat didn't sink, like they had originally planned, it's likely that the killer then went and set the boat ablaze. Which would make sense for why whoever this person was rushed to the store to buy gasoline and then returned to the boat via the skiff. And if only the police officer had been washing the skiff or impounded it, they might have been closer to catching the murderer. But it was too late now. Police realized that they had to go on the suspect's vague description, so they gathered as many eyewitness accounts as they could, and they hired a professional to put together a detailed drawing of the suspect. They then released this drawing to the public, which caught the attention of several people. Police hoped that this ghost fisherman of Craig would finally have a name, and sure enough, a handful of people came forward saying the sketch looked a lot like John Kenneth Peel, the man who used to work for Mark. And as more info came to light, it was obvious that John had a rough history with his former boss, which would give him a motive for killing him. Mark had actually fired John last fishing season because of his alcohol and drug abuse that quickly had spiraled out of control, and police thought this was a good enough motive to commit a massacre. So, John Peel was arrested and charged with arson and eight counts of murder, and his trial began in 1986, but there was one major problem with the case. There was virtually no physical evidence connecting John to the murders. All of it was circumstantial. The best the prosecutors had was a few eyewitnesses. They supposedly saw John on the skiff and in the market buying gasoline, and the prosecution also pieced together a motive. Their plan was to present John Peel as a drug addict and alcoholic who took revenge on his former boss and his entire family. To explain why he killed the rest of the crew, they said it was because he was jealous and that he couldn't leave any witnesses. This was the narrative they stuck with, and they hoped to push it all the way to a conviction in court. They even had the transcript of what John had said to the police in their interview. He said things like, I can't believe the things I did in there, which seemed like a confession. But for the defense, it was easy for them to poke holes in their plan. First, they called into question the accuracy of the transcription. They claimed that he had actually said, I can't believe you all think I did that, rather than I can't believe the things I did in there. So what was actually said was up for debate. 
Then they pulled apart the eyewitness testimonies. Their stories were too inconsistent. And the defense even revealed how the eyewitnesses' stories had changed from two years ago. It was clear they tried to form one straightforward story in court. But it became obvious their stories had been manipulated. Even several other people had seen the person driving the skiff said that it was too difficult to make out the accurate description of the driver. The defense attorneys also poked holes in the motive. John and Mark definitely had a rough history, but murdering him and his whole family and all of his crew seemed to be a huge overreaction. Many didn't buy it. Plus, people began doubting that one man could even pull this all off. How could one guy overpower everyone on the boat? Six grown adults could have easily brought down one man with a gun at close quarters. And the last nail in the coffin for the prosecution was when Mark's relatives ended up defending John. The Coulter's family said that John wouldn't have done something like this, as they all knew him as a friendly guy even though he suffered from addiction, and they all got along with him for the most part. Mark did have a strict no-drug policy in his boat, so he had to let John go. Carrying out the work on a fishing boat is already dangerous, so being under the influence makes it even more dangerous. It was a tough call to fire John, but Mark couldn't take the risk. After the back and forth between the prosecution and the defense, things actually got out of hand. The judge scolded both sides for how the trial was going, because several times during the trial, the lawyers began arguing with each other. The defense accused the prosecution of intimidating eyewitnesses and the police mishandling evidence. And of course, this was all under pressure from the city. They wanted to see someone hanged for these crimes, so the prosecution was desperate for a conviction. The last thing they had was an eyewitness testimony that claimed that John was seen arguing with Mark on the night of the crime. But the defense quickly pointed out that there were eyewitness testimonies that claimed that Mark and John were actually having a friendly conversation. Others said they saw John holding a rifle while standing on the dock. Others say the rifle was locked away all night and no one touched it. These arguments went back and forth during the whole trial. Although it seemed like it would never end, it eventually did. But nothing was solved. After everything, the trial ended with a hung jury. The votes were 7-5 to for acquittal. So John Peel was set free, but still it wasn't over. Two years later in 1988, they retried him in court again for the same crimes. Still, the pressure was on for a conviction. The prosecution had only been able to muster up a tiny bit more evidence to the trial this time. The defense was so confident they would win, they didn't even bother to call any eyewitnesses to testify. And months later, the jury found John Peel not guilty. And all charges were dropped. Which again, this was a major embarrassment for the prosecution. John was their only suspect and now they had absolutely nothing. John even ended up suing the state of Alaska for wrongful prosecution, which he won. And as a result, the court ordered the state to pay John around $900,000 as a settlement. Since then, John has lived a life of privacy and he's tried to put the mystery of the investor behind him. He did appear on Investigation Discovery to talk about the case and he claimed someone else had committed this horrible crime. And he also didn't want to waste his life looking for the real culprits. He had tried to put it all behind him and move on. After John was found not guilty, the case was all the way back to square one. Nearly six years had passed since the tragedy. There were no suspects, no closure, and no answers. Whoever had done this had disappeared into the night like a ghost. And from then on, the case went nowhere. So all that was left were the theories constructed over the years. This was the only sense of closure the town of Craig and the victim's families could get. Surprisingly, after two trials, 
a hung jury, and a not guilty verdict. Many still believe that John Peel was the killer. The biggest hangout most people have, though, is the motive. John was the only person to have a rough history with Mark, and he was last seen at the dock before the murders. But for this to be the cause of the murders, John must have had serious anger issues. Or maybe he was under the influence of heavy drugs at the time. Or possibly there was more going on behind the scenes. Maybe there was more turmoil in their relationship that the public didn't know. Some suggest that John saw Mark's success and he felt left behind after hauling in 77,000 pounds of salmon on his 58-foot boat. Maybe John flew into a rage of jealousy. Others argue that John could have seemed friendly on the outside like many other serial killers do, and they often trick their victims into trusting them and then they flip like a switch. Still, this would mean that one man overpowered six adults. Even with a gun, this would be hard to do in close quarters, also at the time of the massacre. John was a new father at the time, and this would mean he brutally killed two children. Again, the killer piloted the boat to Fish Egg Island and opened the seacocks, hoping it would sink. So this meant that the killer was somewhat familiar with the boat and knew how to operate it. So for many people, John Peel is still their number one suspect in this unsolved mystery of the investor. For me personally, I think all signs do point to John Peel. I think if you look at the circumstantial evidence that's here, I think the two big things that stand out to be most are the fact that whoever did this clearly at least knew enough about these types of boats that they knew how to open up the seacocks in order to try and sink the ship. But also the biggest one is that John Peel was like the last one to be seen with Mark on the dock. And there is a motive for John. He was clearly upset that he wasn't a part of this 77,000 pound haul of salmon. And so maybe this was how he was going to get back at him. And I think a lot of times you'd like to think that in a situation where it's one versus six or something like that, that those six could overpower that one person. But I think if you were actually in this position where someone boarded your ship and they had a gun, would you try to overpower that person? And I think most people aren't going to try something like that for fear of getting shot. And if you think about it, Mark and the rest of his crew, his family, they knew John. So if John boards the ship, or they invited John on, or John somehow talked his way onto the ship, and maybe while they were sleeping, he started sort of setting up these, setting up the crime, essentially, that because this was someone they trusted, you know, they, when John wielded a gun, that maybe they were like, John's angry, maybe we can talk him down, and unfortunately, that's just not what happened, that John may have shot and killed all everybody on board prior to figuring out how he was going to hide his crime. That's kind of what I think. But there's some other theories out there. Another theory suggests that Mark wasn't the honest fisherman that everybody thought he was. A common story accuses Mark of smuggling drugs on his fishing boat. Through this line of work, he ended up being at the mercy of drug kingpins or a cartel of some sort. Maybe he ended up in debt or he pissed off some of the rival drug runners. But in the end, they killed his family and his crew and torched the boat in revenge. There's no known evidence that supports this theory, but some have pointed out a few suspicions. First, his fishing boat did cost over $800,000 and Mark was only 28 years old. Many thought that this meant he was either really successful at fishing or he had gotten the money somewhere else. Other fishermen didn't know how he afforded a boat like the investor. 
and rumors spread that there was a seedy underbelly of the fishing business. Somewhere along the way, Mark might have made some enemies, and when it came to this much money, it wouldn't be surprising if Mark had rubbed a few people the wrong way. But there are two problems with this theory. First, Mark was known for his no-drug policy on the ship, which is the reason why he fired John. So if he was a drug smuggler, then this wouldn't have matched his character. But to be fair, the autopsy showed that Mark and his wife had alcohol in their system, so they weren't completely against drinking. And some witnesses said that Mark occasionally got really drunk, and he had a way of pissing people off. But still, none of this points to him being a drug smuggler. Second, if some sort of drug cartel had made it to Craig, Alaska to kill Mark, that would have stuck out like a sore thumb. In a town filled with fishermen, outsiders would have been pretty easily spotted. So maybe they blended in, or they were careful enough to sneak in and out of Craig without being spotted. But in a busy port like Craig, you would figure someone like this would have been seen. Plus, many doubt that they would know how to open seacocks to sink the boat. And why would drug runners wait around to return to the boat later to set it on fire? One of the biggest arguments against it being a drug hit is that why would they sort of try to hide it or cover it up, I guess? Sometimes those types of murders are put on display. And because all the bodies were hidden and the boat was set on fire, it doesn't really seem like these murders would have been a cartel hit. In the end, it seems like there are a few holes in this theory that haven't been plugged. For me, this theory really doesn't make that much sense. If there was a cartel or some group that he owed money to, and maybe they had financed his operations, why on earth would they try to like sink or burn the ship and sink it? I mean, that boat was worth almost a million dollars, so that would just be a complete waste. To me, it seems like it would have just been way too much trouble for a cartel group to go out to the boat, then come back, to then go back and set it on fire. I mean, it just seems like very risky and obviously very difficult to escape a burning ship without being seen. However, there is another theory that may make a little bit more sense, but it didn't get a lot of attention in the official investigation. There was actually another man named Jim Miller. Jim was allegedly one of the eyewitnesses that saw John Peel driving the skiff. He had testified against him in the first trial in 1986. And as the defense looked into Jim, they noticed a few strange things about him. First, his name wasn't even Jim Miller. His name was actually Kenneth Harvey Robertson, a 49-year-old owner of a shipping company in Anchorage. At the time, he was a convicted arsonist who was actively wanted in Arizona for burning down a building. Also, Kenneth had a history of violence, and he was known for setting cars on fire that were owned by women he had a romantic past with. Not only that, but there was evidence that he had threatened to kill his ex-wife and her entire family. So you would think that someone like this would have been a suspect for the police in this case, but instead he was used as a witness in the case against John Peel. It was also found out that under a different name, two crew members went missing on one of his boats named Red Jacket. Although nothing concrete tied him to the murders in Craig, his background was incredibly suspicious and did fit the profile for this crime. Despite all this, investigators never really looked into this Jim Miller or Kenneth Harvey as a possible suspect. The last theory I'm going to cover, I mean, there's tons of them out there, but this one is one of the more popular ones, is that since Dean Moon and Chris Heyman's bodies were never fully recovered from the boat, perhaps they had something to do with the tragedy. This theory doesn't have any solid evidence to back it up, but it's possible that their bodies were most likely carried away by the tide and one of Dean's teeth had even been found in the remains of the boat. But it's possible that they never died. 
Fellow fishermen have claimed that they spotted Dean Moon in the state of Washington long after the murders, but there have been no sightings by friends or family since that day in 1982. Mark's son's remains were never found on the boat either. To add to this theory, some believe that this was all planned to kidnap John. But if that's true, then why wouldn't they also kidnap Kimberly? This doesn't really make that much sense though. I mean, it seems very unlikely that this is what happened, but again, it's still a theory that's out there. But despite all these different theories, there really is no solid evidence to really point to either of them being the one that's true. All of them are up for debate. 40 years have passed since this tragedy and the case has been cold for a long time. No other suspects have ever been identified. And law enforcement still believes that John Peel was a killer and got away with it. The mystery of the investor lives on. And it's unlikely this case will ever be solved. Even though a long time has passed, these eight murders are still a recent memory in the city of Craig. What was once a simple fishing town that kept to itself became known for this horrific tragedy. And the fact that no one has ever been convicted for this crime still haunts the locals and, of course, the victims' families. No matter how much pressure the public put on the prosecution, they still couldn't squeeze out a guilty verdict. And to this day, the Craig murder still remain Alaska's most horrific mass murder that is still unsolved. So after hearing all of that, what happened? It's very difficult because, unfortunately, I don't think this case is ever going to be solved. In cases where arson is committed or bodies are burned for long periods of time, it can be very difficult to pull DNA and other evidence from these crime scenes. Not to mention that the police took forever to put out the fire on the ship and they did just let it burn. I guess it had been difficult to try and put the fire out, but honestly, I think more could have been done to get that boat under control as opposed to letting it burn for as long as it did. As soon as that state trooper found bodies on board, you would think that they would have stepped up the response, right? That they would have at all costs gotten more tugboats out there or, you know, helicopters, planes even, to try and put out the fires so that they could then investigate and preserve whatever evidence was left on the ship. But that just didn't happen. Out of all the theories, though, again, I think the one that makes the most sense is John Peel. John Peel did it. I mean, he was the last one to be seen with them. He was familiar with the investor, which I think whoever did this was a fisherman or worked on boats like the investor. So they knew potentially how to sink it. And the fact that eyewitnesses seem to see John Peel leaving the investor and piloting that skiff back and forth. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that perhaps John Peel was disgruntled. He was pissed that he wasn't a part of that big haul they had just brought in. And I mean, sometimes people do, I mean, people who are disgruntled about being fired from a job, I mean, it happens all the time, unfortunately, where people go and commit mass murder. And to me, this, all the signs and circumstantial evidence point to John Peel committing this mass murder. And then he attempted to sink it to try to you know, destroy all the evidence. And when the boat didn't sink, he knew he, the only other way to get rid of the evidence would be to set it on fire. And that's exactly what he did. Is it possible that this was a random killing of some sort? Yeah, it's possible, but I think it's pretty unlikely that it would have gone down in this manner. I mean, why also try to destroy the ship as well? If you're already going to 
shoot everybody, then, you know, why take that risk to then go and try to burn it down? doesn't really make sense. It's just crazy, though, how mishandled this was by police. I think if they did preserve the crime scene a little bit better, that there's probably a chance that they could have pulled some evidence that could link John Peel to the crime. But again, it was a different time period in the 80s, and there's so many cases that just got botched by investigators. And again, this was the town of Craig, Alaska, and this kind of thing just never really happened there. So likely the troopers or the police in that area just didn't have experience with dealing with a crime of this caliber. I mean, you're dealing with arson, which is also very difficult to investigate, and you do need to have special training and skill set to do a proper arson investigation. The other thing that gets me is like there wasn't any evidence of this transaction to get gasoline. Like whoever went and got the gasoline probably had to purchase it from somewhere unless they stole it, I guess. But there was no cameras. I mean, this was the 80s, so likely there was no CCTV cameras at the time. So it was just all based on eyewitnesses. And again, I mean, the disguise was good enough to sort of blend in with all the other fishermen there. So whoever did do this definitely thought through it pretty well. And to me, it seems like this was a planned murder and not just a random killing. Seems like they knew exactly what they were going to do. The fact that they took the investor out to Fish Egg Island far enough away from the harbor where no one would be able to see them very well. There's tons of fog that rolled in there. They knew exactly where to put the boat and all signs just point to somebody who had been on the investor and worked in that area before they knew exactly where to take it. They knew how to sink the boat. And then when they didn't sink the boat, they knew exactly what else to do after that. And the fact that John Peel was never found guilty is just, it's sad, but it happens when there's no evidence or no, nothing to tie the killer directly to the crime. Maybe one day something will turn up or maybe John Peel will eventually confess to what he potentially did. But again, all suspects are presumed innocent until found guilty in the court of law. And so far two trials and not guilty. So with that, I want to know what you think of this case. Do you believe it was John Peel or is it another theory that maybe I mentioned or one that I didn't mention because again this is an unsolved case and there are tons and tons of theories around it but I gave you some of the most I guess popular ones out there but let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube what you think or let me know on social media thanks again for joining me for another episode of the lights out podcast and I'll see you next time until then lights out everybody everybody